Welcome to the Story King Podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today we'll be talking to New York-based writer-slash-musician-slash-educator Tom Rizzuto. Tom Rizzuto is an educator. He has a master's in musicology and currently working towards a doctorate. He's been an arts and culture blogger. He's had nonfiction pieces featured in History Magazine and Discover Magazine. He's written plays that have been produced and film shorts that have featured at film festivals. So here's my conversation with Tom Rizzuto. Hi, Tom. Hi, Giancarlo. How are you doing? All right. Welcome to the Story King podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No problem. Glad you're here. So before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, what you're currently working on, that sort of thing? Sure. My name is Tom Rizzuto. I, I'm a, a writer, a musician. I teach music history and guitar at Malloy College in Rockville uh-huh. Center on Long Island. And I also teach guitar classes other places. I teach guitar privately. And currently, I'm working on my dissertation for my for my doctorate. I'm working on my doctorate also at Molloy College in educational leadership. So that is taking up the majority of my writing time right now. When I have time to write for myself, I'm mostly right now looking into writing um, more academically, uh, more historically, but I have written fiction as well. I just don't have time to do it at the moment. And what, what's your dissertation going to be on specifically then? Uh, well, my dissertation is about music education and public policy, specifically the interconnections between uh, music education and the new, new-ish law, the, uh, referred to as ESSA, the Every Student Succeeds Act, and how that law may or may not be different than the law it replaced, No Child Left Behind. And how far along are you? Well, I am uh, starting what's called the dissertation sequence, which means that I'm I've achieved candidacy in the program. Uh, so I've done all of my classwork and I've taken my comprehensive exams. And now that's all that is left is to actually write the dissertation and to take seminars, which are different from classes for some reason. They seem identical, but that, that's what they tell us. <laughs> right. So talk about some of your influences. You've been writing nonfiction for quite some time. I mean, now you're in the academic field, but you are also a arts and culture blogger. And I mean, you've done nonfiction for a while. Is that where your passion lies? Or Honestly, um, I would say that my, my passion lies in fiction, to be completely honest with you. But I do love nonfiction. I tend to read more nonfiction than I read fiction. I think that I gravitate towards nonfiction because I like, I always appreciated journalism. I, I've, before I even knew that this was the case, I kind of gravitated towards writers who had a history in journalism. So right now, I guess the the name that comes to mind is Malcolm Gladwell. And he has a way of using real life stories to to make a narrative which i think is so fascinating and i really really enjoy that the the other book i'm reading right now i know you asked me what i was working on but the other, the other book i'm reading right now is uh disgraceland by jake brennan it's based mm-hmm. on the podcast by the same name and it's all stories of his tagline is rock and roll and murder <laughs> so it's basically true crime stories revolving around rock stars and true crimes that they themselves have committed. And it's really, really fascinating. Wow. So I, I'm aspiring right now to do work like that. In terms of the, the pop culture blogging I've done in the past, I've always kind of tried to, to have it be slanted towards story rather than straight commentary. Right. And I think that one article I wrote that probably one of my favorite articles I wrote is I created a, and this was back when I was doing a master's degree in musicology. Um, I did a narrative of Beethoven's love life to try to prove that Beethoven loved Italian women, (laughs) which is completely speculative. You can't prove that nobody has talked to Beethoven, but we do have the names of a couple of the women that he was involved with and they all have Italian last names. So I kind of, it was more 
I mean, you can call it speculative historical fiction, but that's the kind of stuff I like. So that's the kind of stuff that I would like to be working on when I have time to work. And that actually does sound a lot like Malcolm Gladwell. I'm a big Gladwell fan too. And he does a lot of that too. You know, he goes into history and he tries to get like the deeper stuff. I don't know if you've read his book, David and Goliath and his recent book, Talking to Strangers, but he does a lot of that. Like he's, he's kind of like speculating motives and, and trying to get into that deeper stuff to, to form the narrative. But, um, so we were talking about, you mentioned two people for influences and anybody else you, you would consider an influence. Yeah, I think that my biggest, so when I was younger, when I first started being interested in writing stories and telling stories, I think my biggest influence was The Simpsons. <laughs> More than anything else, to be completely honest with you. You know, I love, right. as, a, as a young person, I love The Simpsons. I love anything Simpsons related. I read the comic books. I read everything. I had a Simpsons trivia game. Like, I was that nerdy kid who knew who wrote which episode and all those things. Right. Um, and then as time went on, I went through a an Anglophile phase where I was just fascinated with anything British. And that's when I discovered Nick Hornby. And I think uh, that yeah, High Fidelity is just, I mean, I haven't actually read High Fidelity in more than a decade, but it's it's still, I have to give it the honorary title of my favorite book because it's just, it's the beginning of everything. It's the, it's the you know, it's the Bible for self-obsessed young men. And it's every book that focused on focuses on a self-obsessed young man, which were all of my favorite novels when I was a self-obsessed young man. All of those books can be traced to high fidelity. So I think that that was mm-hmm. my, one of my big, probably my biggest influence in terms of fiction that I've written. And I also went through a period of British film where I just devoured every single British film that I could get my hands on. There was a company probably still exists called working dog productions Mm. that made some of the best um, completely plotless British movies in the history of (laughs) just nonstop prose, but people speaking it like that's the best way to describe it. So what are your favorite things to write about then so i mean you mentioned because it sounds like even your fiction you you do like a realistic bend to it well let's let me put it this way so i mean the reason why i think high fidelity resonates with so many people and why you know nick hornby has been eating on high fidelity for the last 20 30 years i don't even know when that book was written to be completely honest with you but it's been a movie it's been it was just recently a tv show it's been uh, Broadway musical. The reason why High Fidelity resonates so much with so many people is that it is so real. You know, nothing actually happens in High Fidelity. There's a, a, I guess, a subplot about running a record store, but High Fidelity is about emotions. It's about relationships. It's about somebody, it's quite literally about somebody going through their past and trying to rehash their own relationships that they've had. It's, and I like that. I don't know what, what, what about that appeals to people, but, but for me, that's right on with what I like. So, you know, everything that I do enjoy and everything that I do aspire to do revolves around real life human relationships, I think. Right. You know, m- my wife and I just watched uh, two movies back to back, but for the first time, they're, they're old, but Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, have you ever seen these? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, talk about movies about nothing. They're just talking the whole movie, but it's fascinating. And you're just kind of gripped with this whole thing, you know, and, and uh, it's just, you know, to me, that's like the power of realistic emotions and, and how we just gravitate towards them, you know? Oh, it's fantastic. You know, it, it's, I think that's why, I, I honestly feel like that's why I get burnt out on superhero movies because, I feel like the first superhero movie in every specific, also they just keep rebooting them. Like I don't know how many times I'm supposed to watch Peter Parker get bitten by a spider. (laughs) The first in every series is always about human emotion. It's always about relationships. It's always about the relationships that form this person. But then once you get past the origin story, it becomes about explosions. And (laughs) the most fascinating characters become the villains because there's always a new origin story for every villain. Uh, I guess I'm using Batman as the, as the classic example for that. Every Batman adventure, we get to meet a new villain and how they became a villain. We only get to see Batman become Batman once. 
Right. And then we, we know everything we need to know about them. <laughs> yeah. Which is why they keep doing it because it's the most, it's the most exciting part of the story, which is why we have 40 different Batman right. <laughs> at any given time. Right. I know now it's like, oh, who's going to be the new Batman? We've just accepted this in society that there's just going to be a new Batman every few years. <laughs> there's a new Batman every, there, there's, I'm pretty sure there, there is. You're right. There's a new Batman every three years. Right. So, I mean, you know what's interesting too? I write primarily speculative fiction, magical realism, fantasy, sci-fi. But as far as reading, um, I read much more nonfiction than fiction, which is the weird thing, you know? So, I read books on physics. I read uh, Malcolm Gladwell and all these things. But there's something about uh, real life that, that grips me as well. So, I'm, I'm right there with you. Let's talk about writing nonfiction because, you know, you seem to... It, you're, you're very conscious of making sure that it's a narrative. So, how do you craft nonfiction into like a fun, readable narrative? Because it can get um, boring if you don't do it right. So, I like historical nonfiction more than anything else. Um, so, if I think that you have to really work hard to find the narrative in any particular fact, right? So oftentimes history books will only record facts because we don't know what happened behind closed doors. The further you go back in history, I think the more fiction is required to actually craft something that's interesting to write. So you, you have to kind of extrapolate on what is actually happening, um, on the, the human quality of what is actually happening. Probably the most successful person doing that right now um, at least in the world of theater, is Lin Manuel Miranda and Hamilton, of course. Right. You know, when you when you actually read about Hamilton's life, you see that there is a a great deal of liberty that Lin Manuel Miranda took, but for good. You know, I don't I don't think that that's a bad thing that he did. That I think it's a good thing because if you actually take the person of Alexander Hamilton, nobody would want to watch a musical about this guy. He is a, he is boring and utterly dislikable. Right. And he, you, you do also do have to take out a lot of the things that he believed in order to make him, you know, sympathetic. But I think that there is a there's that through line that runs throughout history where you have to decide how you want to present something. You know, I tend to go towards the biographic. Um, when you do that, you have to accept that people are very complicated and nuanced. And you have to make a choice of whether what you want to do is do you want to do you want to make a hero out of a person who is a normal person, or do you want to present a person with all of their flaws? I tend to present people with flaws. I like flaws. I like the I like the examination of somebody else's flaws. I think that all, too many times we people try to present heroics, and I think that that kind of it, it leads people to become disenchanted with the with the medium so if we're going to so once you explore those flaws though i think that through those flaws that's where stories come from i think stories come from conflict and i think stories come from come from maybe things that you don't want to acknowledge you wouldn't write a children's book about beethoven in the same day that you would write a adult's book about beethoven so if you're going <laughs> to if you were going to craft a narrative about Beethoven's life, and so many people have done it so well. I, I love when they talk about flaws, and I love when they talk about the biography, and I love when writers go on just borderline tangential stories. That's, that's the stuff that I like. I'm not as concerned about the things that actually make history. I think that those are so prominent that it'd be hard to ignore them. I, I prefer to err on the side of finding a narrative within the life of that person and really getting to know the characters in that person's life. Because I think that people who write history sometimes forget that real people are characters. You know, characters are not something that are invented. Characters are something that are, you know, there wouldn't be any fictional characters if there weren't real life characters. I think that if you find the real life characters in any particular history, that's where you will find the stories that are interesting to read about. At least that's how I feel about it. Right. No, I, I think you're at, and that's going to your other point about why villains are more interesting, right? Because they're full of flaws. And now I feel like they're doing a good job 
showing why someone's evil. You know, when back in the days, you would just have a villain and he's just evil, right? If you watch the Joker movie, though, you get this whole background of what, how the Joker became the Joker, right? And and all of a sudden, you're, you, you're empathizing with this guy because he's had a horrible life and this and that. And it's the same thing in, in nonfiction, I would say, too. You know, you know growing up, uh, I'm older than you, so I don't know if they've taught history anymore, honestly. But you know, you remember the term Honest Abe, you know, we sort of mythologize these characters in, uh, in our history and, um, and it does a disservice, it dehumanizes them. So, I, I think presenting people with flaws uh, gives it a much more human feel and a much more believable thing because we all have flaws. So, to see somebody with flaws triumph, you know, I think that actually makes it more of a, a hero story because, you know, we can always, uh, we always live vicariously through the characters we're reading, you know? You know, I, I you know, the, I gotta be honest with you, John Carlo, there's part of me that believes that the, the reason why villains are the most interesting in so many stories is because you're almost allowed to give them more flaws because they are going to end up being evil. <laughs> you know, you, and I think that, I think a lot of audiences are not prepared for anti-heroes in a way, I also, I still think that the whole anti-hero genre has been watered down over the years to, like, just a standard hero who is grumpier than Superman. Right. Not, not, <laughs> you know, not that I'm even that big a fan of comic book stuff, because I'm really not, to be completely honest with you. Like, I thought I was, and then I met people who were really into comic books, and I knew that I was completely out of my depth. But the, I, I think that you know, the audiences of fiction need to become more comfortable with, with, uh, with flaws, with real life people, you know, I think honestly, the audiences of life need to be more comfortable with real life flaws and people to be completely honest with you, you know? I mean, I, I think that's probably why certain shows like The Sopranos, uh, Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones are so popular because the whole show is about anti-heroes, like deeply flawed guys, <laughs> you know, and we, and it just resonates with us and we just want to, and then we, we find ourselves rooting for this guy that, that you know it's not going to end well by the end of the series. Right. So, do you have a t particular target audience then when you're writing nonfiction or, I mean, it, it sounds like you're m writing more for an adult audience, I'd imagine. Uh, you know, I, I wish that was true. I think that my audience used, first of all, my target audience is anybody who wants to read me. But I think <laughs> right. that um, my, the way I write skews more towards like, um, like, late teens through maybe early 40s. I think I, I've, you know, I, I think that, I, which is, you know, I guess, I gave a really big age range, but is where I fall myself. You know, I think that I tend to write more irreverently, irreverently than I, you know, than maybe journalistically. You know, I think irreverence comes naturally to me. I also need, I think that in order to really get what I do, you need to have a sense of humor. Is that what you mean by irreverent, like just writing sort of candidly and, and humorously? Both that, yeah, and also just the the original um, meaning of the word irreverent, which is just disrespectful. You know, I don't, right. <laughs> I don't, um, I'm never in like intentionally disrespectful. I don't think to anything, but I I think that I I like to approach topics that people revere, and I like to come at them from a from a different sense. You know, I I don't like. I'm, I don't like hero worship writing, mm -hmm. you know, like I, so I try to veer away from that. And I think I learned how to do that when I was doing my master's degree. I have a master's in musicology, mm. which is the, it's the most useless master's degree to have. <laughs> and I got it with, with gusto when I got it. Uh, the, so there, when I was doing my research for this degree and when I was writing for this degree, there was a, a huge push towards discrediting Beethoven. And I hated it, Be not just because I love Beethoven and I do, but it's because 
the attacks made on Beethoven by so many of these people were not founded on anything except for the desire to be the person who took down Beethoven. See, I don't <laughs> like that. That's, that's an example of what I'm not trying to do. But what I do like is I like somebody who just keep using Beethoven as the example. Um, I'm reading a book about Beethoven right now um, called The Universal Composer. And it's kick I'm kicking myself that I forgot who the author is because he's very, very good at this. But what he does is he comes at Beethoven as a human being. And if you read about Beethoven, all these writings about Beethoven, they write about Beethoven as though he's Jesus. And <laughs> he was not. He was a com totally, totally flawed person. But, you know, musicians like to think of Beethoven as like, you know, he was born in lightning and then um, existed in thunder until he until he shattered into a million pieces and was absorbed back into the earth. <laughs> right. That's not how it was. You know, he was a deeply flawed person who, who had a sense of humor and should be understood as, you know, anybody else that ever lived and breathed. And that's, that's the kind of writing I like to do. I like to, I like to expose me. I like, okay. So here's, here's an interesting paradox. I like to expose things that people don't know about. I like to write about like, how Duke Ellington got stabbed in the face by his wife. Wow. You know, the, the, the custody battle that Beethoven had over his nephew, the, you know, Beethoven's love life. Like these are all things I've written about in, in the past. Um, how Richard Wagner liked to dress in women's clothes or at least very frilly silk male <laughs> clothes. You know, I, I like exposing those things, but it's not because I want to embarrass the legacy of these people. It's because I want to, it's almost like I want to shock people into taking them off the pedestal and then we can talk about them. You know what I mean? Right. So it's almost like on one end, we have like the mythologizing of these characters and history. And then on the other end, there's like this academic smear campaign and you're trying to write somewhere in the middle where you're exposing the flaws and mixing it with the good. Cause I mean, that's basically the human experience. Well, I would never make fun of somebody who I didn't like, you know, that's mean. Right. But I'm, I make fun of my friends and my and my family viciously because that's how, for whatever reason, that's how I've come to show love. But I'm not saying that that's the right way to go about things. It's probably not. But you know, that's how I approach writing too. Is that it's it's of no interest to me to bring down. I mean, we'll keep going with Beethoven because of alphabetical order. But there's no risk. It's of no interest for me to bring down Beethoven for the sake of bringing down Beethoven. I don't want to bring down Beethoven. I want to I want to elevate Beethoven's humanity. And I want to do it in a way that is understandable to people. I think that if you if you raise people to these to these, these heights, you ever met somebody who doesn't have a personality but uses disliking things as a substitute for their own personality? <laughs> I, th I think so. Yes, yeah, th these people are rampant, especially in the arts. There are people who just do not like anything. And right. if you ask them what they do like, it's always something so horrible that you think to yourself, there's no way you actually like this. You just right, want right. the one person who says you like <laughs> this thing. There's so right. much of that. And I hate that. <laughs> I'm trying not to do that. But having said that, you know, there I I like I like coming at things with irreverence. I like I like humanizing. I like things that that um, you know, I think people, people confuse achievement for greatness. You know, I, I don't think the two are necessarily compatible. Interesting. I think it's, it's more fun to talk about a person and how they achieved in you within the confines of humanity than it is to, you know, think about a person as this phenom that could do nothing less than achieve. That's not fun. You know, right. that, that's that's that doesn't interest me to read. That's not fun to talk. That's not fun to think about. That's not fun to write about. I like things that are I like it. I like everything to be an underdog story. Those are the best kind. Yeah. So there, let me there's ask never going to be a good movie made about Jeff Bezos. <laughs> you don't think so? Unless he's the villain. <laughs> he looks like, like a superhero. I, I like Jeff Bezos. Right. <laughs> You know, he's, a, he's crazy. I like Jeff Bezos. Let me tell you why I like Jeff Bezos. Because Jeff Bezos is not trying to be the hero. He's not trying. I don't know if he's necessarily trying to be a villain, but he's making it seem that way. He's got all this money. He's building right. a clock in a mountain. He, you know, he has right. no, he, the, you never hear about the philanthropic things that Amazon does. He just gets money. Right. And 
that was his mission in life and he did it. So <laughs> I, I do have to give a little bit of respect to Jeff Bezos for being honest about that. Yeah, he, he, he does look a little bit like Lex Luthor, so maybe we'll see him uh, in, in a movie uh, with him being the villain. He is Lex Luthor. He's, yeah. he is, and I'm not so convinced that Elon Musk isn't a villain either, to be completely <laughs> honest with you. Right. So you haven't done this in a while. But um, but you have written plays that uh, at least one that's been produced. You've also written film shorts. So so we spoke a little bit. You you like to stay in the realism? Is it, what would you consider the genre interest there? In um in plays and film and film shorts, unless they're unless they're uh, different, you know. And you've also been featured in festivals. It's, I love dialogue. I can't mm. get enough dialogue. If I can write a whole novel that's only dialogue, I would. If they would let me, I would 100% do that. Okay. Um, I, I think that the, you know, writing dialogue is fun because you get to write a conversation and decide how the other person responds to you, which is what we're all trying to do in life. I think. Right. <laughs> I think. Um, the, you know, um, the, the plays I wrote I haven't written plays in a very, very long time. But the plays I wrote um, that got produced were such a learning experience to me because you got to see actual people say the words that sounded so good in your head. And you realize that when they're coming out of somebody else's head, they don't sound nearly as good. And that was such a, that was such a great learning experience for me. Like that's, that's, if there's anything fiction-wise that I pride myself on, it's my ability to write dialogue. And that was forged writing plays and screenplays because first it's the main, I mean, to me, I mean, people will disagree with me on this, but I do believe that the main means of expression for any kind of play or screenplay or anything like that is dialogue. And the, the ability to do that and to watch unsuspecting actors say those words was just such a, it was such a great learning experience because you get to hear what the words in your head sound like. Everything sounds good in your own head, you know. But then when you actually hear people say it, you get to you get to notice how people speak and how people. First of all, nobody ever says anything as quickly as it happens in your brain. Right. And second of all, nobody knows where the implied emphasis is except for you. <laughs> so to hear that and to see it happen, it's like it. It it makes you write first of all more concisely, and it makes you write in a way that gets your message across because if the actor can figure it out everybody can figure it out if you need to write too many parentheses where it's like he says this sadly like if that's you're not doing your job to me right and actors they bring their own stamp to it right that you're not even thinking of when when you write is was that fair to say oh yeah yeah actors are great actors are you know actors get a bad rap and mostly deserved and I say this as somebody who has acted and who a lot of friends are actors and married an actress. Really good actors have a great relationship to dialogue because they know how to say things. It, it's not, it, dialogue on a page is meaningless, it, unless it's in a book, I guess. I don't know, I'm just saying things that may not hold up. But in terms of screenplays and plays, uh, actors are a, a good actor, and there's so many bad ones, but there's bad people at every job. You know, a good actor really knows how to bring something new to the words that you wrote. And watching that happen is amazing as well, because it makes you, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've seen things I've written get, get laughs. And then I've said, oh, I didn't know that was a joke. But <laughs> right. it turns out to be the biggest laugh that I got in the entire thing. And that, that's, that's due in large part to the, the influence that actors bring to it. And directors, too, you know. The plays in particular are very interesting because there's so many people who interpret your work from the moment you write it to the moment people see it, that it's just, it's a, it's a painful experience in a lot of ways, but it's a good experience. Hmm. Now, since you, you mentioned uh, humor, in all your work, I've noticed it in your nonfiction writing and the film shorts uh, I've seen, you, you do use humor as a primary vehicle to communicate. So, is that intentional or does humor just come natural to you? I think of myself as a very serious person, but when I tell that to people who know me, they laugh at me and disagree. They think I'm joking. <laughs> they think I'm joking. So I do, I guess I do 
I love humor. Humor is my first love. Humor has always been my first love. I, 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 the first job that I ever wanted to be when I was a child, and I have a uh, picture of myself that I drew when I was like four years old, pretending to be a stand-up comedian. I don't know how I knew what a stand-up comedian was at four years old, but right. I loved it. I loved telling jokes. I gravitated towards Fozzie Bear and the Muppet Babies. Um, I gravitated towards the Simpsons way too young to understand um, what the Simpsons were about. I, I love jokes. I think that there's, I think that there's so much truth in humor. And I think that sometimes humor is the only way to get at the truth. I think that, you know, um, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And I think that humor is the best way to do that. I think that a lot of the stuff I've written, if I wrote it seriously, it would be unbearable because I think that it, I, it's, especially when I was writing for, I used to write for this blog called crazy town, which was a, which was so fun for me because it was, I basically had carte blanche to write about whatever I wanted. And then it got taken over by a, a company that may or may not be located in Asia. I'm actually not sure, but the, but it got taken over in like a, a crazy, crazy media scheme and those writings were lost for years and then i recently discovered that they existed in some archive online i found them those are the ones i sent to you or the ones that i found that exist i was so happy to find them because you know because i was allowed to write about whatever i want i was i was able to write in whatever way i wanted and so i was able to make jokes that it didn't particularly matter if anybody understood and that's when you make the best jokes so i i think that and I was writing about a lot of pretty serious things, but I was writing about them in an irreverent way. But I think that if I were to try to write those things without trying to be funny, I think that it would just, first of all, who am I to talk about such things? I have no qualification. I have, a, at the time that I was writing, I had a master's degree in musicology, which basically qualifies me to be arts and leisure director on a time machine. There's no, <laughs> you know, there's no, <laughs> I had no qualification to do anything. But I was, by virtue of answering an ad on Facebook, I was given this job writing for this blog that let you wrote about, write, write about anything, whatever way you wish to do. So um, I think that if I had done that seriously, I think that it would have been kind of, it, would, it wouldn't have gone over well. In fact, I did get a lot of, you know, the comment sections on a lot of the things I wrote, which have unfortunately been lost to history, were so much fun for me because it really let you see how people with no sense of humor react to things. And it's, I wonder what that world is like for them. Cause I read, I wrote an article in particular about um, my belief that John Cage was a, uh, was a con man and was putting on the entire musical community by, you know, writing silent pieces and pieces made of toasters exploding and stuff like that. <laughs> and do I actually believe that? No, but did everybody, did a lot of people in the comment section wholeheartedly believe I meant that and come after me as some kind of cretin? Absolutely. <laughs> and, but that was so much fun. Like, I think that, you know, the, the, without humor, everything becomes so, I think we're living in a humorless society right now, to be completely honest with you. And everybody's afraid to make jokes and everybody, and like, I'm, I should say, because I know this is going out on the internet, I don't think anybody should be trying to offend anybody. And I definitely think that there are words that people shouldn't say. However, <laughs> having said that, you should make fun of things. I think if you don't make fun of things, things get so, so painful to, to, to deal with. You know, it's, it's like a valve. It's like if you don't like release that valve a little bit and just let some of the steam blow off, then things explode. That's just science. And I think that some people, I think that humor is probably the, the best way to do that. Because if, if I wasn't making jokes about things, I'd be outside with a golf club just hitting trees. <laughs> right. You know, you just need something to, you just need to, to let things breathe. I think that humor is such a great way to do that. So if I do gravitate towards doing things in a funny way, it, it's, it's probably just because I, I want to be more subversive than I feel like I have the right to be. Right. No, I, it's a good... Uh... It's a good tool that, that always works, too, especially in your own writing that I've read. And, you know, I think we're living in a cancel culture, you know, and, and so, uh, an era of social censorship where comedians are, you know, they're afraid to even perform at colleges because, you know, they, they get complained about and then uh, they're, they're lampooned all over the Internet. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, 
it's really a disservice because you know humor is it, and comedy it, it's really social commentary and you know you can't take everything so serious it, it should be like what you're suggesting just like a relief and a vehicle to get truth in there you know like dave Chappelle is excellent at that you know he's got a lot of social commentary while making fun of a lot of things and he's not even trying to be politically correct and he does get attacked but he just keeps going you know so i really appreciate that about dave Chappelle that he just he's his own person and he just uh, he just takes it you know you know, I think that that is, I think he in particular, he has the right idea. I think that when you get attacked, I honestly think you just have to keep barreling through it. I think that the only way out is through. I think once you start, um, you know, once you start kowtowing to the mob, it be, the mob always comes for itself too. That's the thing. Like in history, we're talking about history, you know, every mob always eats itself. The designers of the French Revolution all got guillotined. And that's right. <laughs> the way it goes. So, like, I think that you have to just be an individual. And I think that if, you're, if your particular brand of individuality leads people to dislike you, that's great. That's, I think you need, you need haters. You really do. Unfortunately, we live in a society right now due to social media where, you know, 40 people who are loud enough can discredit the views of 400,000 people who are happy to just be entertained. And that's, that's so scary. That's so bad for the arts. Very true. Think of all the stuff that probably would not have been published or produced or anything today. You know, I mean, do you think Sopranos would be produced today? That's an interesting question. Yeah. They're very, uh, politically incorrect with some of their like racial things and stuff and they're painting a picture of of the mob but i don't think people are interested in in truth like that if it's offensive at least i most people are but like i said we're in this cancel culture where i don't know if it's the uh the networks themselves or whatever but like you said you know 40 people are dictating um and trumping over like 400,000 people you know so it's an interesting time how would you pitch the Sopranos? You would say, we have this story about this guy. He is a criminal and a murderer. He cheats on his wife constantly. He has outdated views about sex and about gender. And he's a family man. And he is the hero. <laughs> I mean, I think that sounds great. But, you know, I also know that you can root for people and not want to be them and not necessarily want them in your life. And I'm not sure if people know that anymore, you know? Absolutely. All right, so let's... Let's switch gears a little bit. Um, I know you've had some experience working with editors, um, you know, as, as a writer. I have, I have experience being on both sides of that fence, having written work that's been, you know, rigorously edited and also having to edit the work of others. You know, both of those experiences, in, in my opinion, are really frustrating. As a writer, you can feel misunderstood and that your vision is being lost to someone else's opinion, largely on what you consider arbitrary matters and as an editor you might feel like the writer's work isn't clear so let's talk about your own experience there uh, when you said arbitrary matters that just struck me right in the heart because it <laughs> i think that um so here's where i'm gonna lose a lot of people and that's fine but i think it's true and i think that it, a lot of writers feel that way and they don't want to say it i think that there has been a culture of editor worship where it's people will there are two ends of the spectrum and they're both bad and i'm guilty of being on both ends at any given time in my life the one end that i'm you know am hopefully growing out of 50 15 20 years into this the the one end of it is everything i write is brilliant every line i write needs to be there everything uh, every character i've made is perfectly formed and they need to stay or else you lose the nuance of it that person's a bad person on the other end there's um Nothing I write is worth anything. I have to give this to the editor. And whatever the editor says, I have to take at face value because they know because they call themselves an editor. That is also wrong. And I think that those two ends of the spectrum, I think there's a, a place in the middle. But I think that, first of all, a couple of things. One is you have to find the right editor for your work. I don't think that every editor is right for every author. And I think that that's a very hard process. I think it's like dating. It's, it's like finding your audience. I think that a lot and this is gonna not gonna earn me any friends as editors but i should say that i've i've worked as an editor before and i know that this is true from my own experience because i'm guilty of this myself at times 
I think that editors um, sometimes just don't get it. And they also sometimes, they sometimes want to make suggestions for the sake of making suggestions. And I think that that's a byproduct of not getting it. I think that when you find an editor and a writer that really work well together, I think that they work well together and they, 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 their visions merge. But I think that then there's a clash. I think that you get two things. I think you get an editor just making, making suggestions for the sake of making suggestions, sometimes on arbitrary things, sometimes on things that make sense. And I think that you get the writer who just like digs his heels in the ground and doesn't move. And I think that when that happens, those two people need to split up and find other partners. You know, I don't think that it necessarily means that's a bad editor or a bad writer. I think that it's just a bad match. Having said that, there's brilliant editing. I mean, the, my two favorite classic novels, um, I, don't, I guess they might not even fall into the realm of classic yet, but my two favorite older novels are The Great Gatsby and by F. Scott Fitzgerald and The Sun also Rises. Mm-hmm. Those two books were edited by the same person whose name oh. I forgot, which is probably why editors need to prove themselves so much. Um, they, that was a joke to all the editors that might be listening to this. Um, those editors got it you know which is why you know the great gatsby is 95 pages long or something and it's brilliant and which is why the sun also rises you know just gets at the heart of somebody who spends so much time pretending he doesn't have a heart it's brilliant i think that you have if you're a writer looking for editors i think you have to look out for editors who just want to make suggestions i think that if they're making too many suggestions about things that don't make sense it's a bad sign i think that if they are if they are bringing up stuff that doesn't that just doesn't matter like a lot of writers will say just change it the the most dangerous phrase an editor could say to me is you know what would be great because that's not you editing my work that's you trying to rewrite my work i don't want that you know so like if they're saying you know it'd be great what if he drove a honda civic what what like why why would you even why is that even important Honda might not even be making civics next year. Who cares? Right. <laughs> you know, but like that's, you want to avoid that, but you also want to avoid, you know, that, that instinct where it's like, you know, people will say, do we need this scene? And immediately I go, of course we need that scene. But then I have to stop and I have to say, do we need that? Scene? You know, it, it takes me, I'm horrible. It takes me like, and I've told this to people editing my work before I say, give me these suggestions then give me two weeks because everything you say, I'm going to say, no, 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 no. That's not my vision. Who are you to do? You need to go. But then after two weeks, I can like, I can process it better and I can look at it more um, objectively. It takes me time because it, it takes me time to, it takes me time to edit my own work. It takes me time to be able to, 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 to read something I wrote as if I didn't write it. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, you need that distance. Absolutely. There are times where I put something away for, let's say, a year, and then I come back and I'm able to just ruthlessly edit it. You know, I'm not attached to any of it emotionally. It's the best thing, you know. Having said that, on the other spectrum, it is, a, it is great to be paid to write. Because when you are paid to write about something that you don't particularly care about, it is the greatest joy in the world. Because you get to write, let the editor do whatever they want, because who cares? I love that. Like in times where I've written for magazines, it is the best thing in the world to just be like, have an editor send you back something with red marks on it and be like, sure. And who cares? (laughs) That's, that's amazing. Um, But people, I guess people don't like to do that. I don't know. I've gotten to a point in my life where I'm much happier to just do grunt work than I, in, in words and (laughs) just leave my own expression to myself. I gotcha. Well, as we wrap up here, you know, you're, you're involved in a lot of things. Uh, you got, you're pursuing your doctorate. You've done writing, plays, fiction. Um, you're into music education. Where, where do you see yourself professionally in, let's say, five years out? I don't want to answer that question because I'm very superstitious. <laughs> um, but, and I'm also terrible at predicting things. Like everything, I, I think that this, this whole situation that we're living through right now with the, with the pandemic has proven how bad I am at making predictions. Like it's almost cartoonish. Every time I say that'll never happen, it happens like that day. <laughs> so I remember when they closed the colleges, I was like, they'll never close the college. And then we got the email that day. And that's been how this has worked for the last six months of my life. So I'm, I, 
I won't say where I think I'll be in five years. I'll say that I hope to, um, I hope to be making, let's just say this, just money, just tons of money, just hot, sweaty <laughs> money, just hot, like the kind of money that hates, that makes people hate you. Just, just like right. just Jeff Bezos money, duck levels of money, <laughs> just diving in coins for the sheer joy of, you know, just tasting metal. Like that's, that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm looking for. No, I, I don't, I don't really mean that. I hope it's true. I, how about this? I hope that five years from now, I'm making the best work that I've ever made. That's a fair hope. Yeah. If I'm making just burlap sacks with dollar bills embroidered on it, then that's, <laughs> that's great too. <laughs> nice. Yeah. All right. So last but not least, I did read an article from, I think it was 2016 about all the things you're afraid of. Uh, sharks, other people's dogs, the dark little kid ghosts. I'm afraid of all those things too, by the way. Is there anything else you've added to that list in 2020? Not having enough toilet paper, perhaps? Um, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to have a funny answer for this, but in, in reality, I'm just very scared that we're losing nuance as a society. I, and I think that a, a big theme of the stuff that I've said today is that I love nuance. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that I'm just scared that we're losing the ability to to just look at things and say eh you know right. <laughs> like i want to have the right not to care about something again like <laughs> right there are very important things happening in the world again i'm scared to say this now, but there are very, there are very important things happening in the world that we should all be thinking about and caring about all the time and we should be doing those things however there's also you know the stance that cheerios takes in politics i don't care I don't care what Cheerios wants to do, you know, whose Cheerios are voting for, you know, what is the Lucky Charms guy, what's he going to do in 2022 right. years? You know, I think that I, I just hope that at some point we can all just be entertained again. You know, I, I don't know if that comes from a p position of privilege. It probably does. But at the same time, you know, privileged people have to laugh too. <laughs> right. You know, in terms of like actual stuff that we should be afraid of, I'm afraid that people are making their desire to go back to normal prevent them from being safe i'm, mm. I'm about to go back and teach in a school in a couple of days mm. and um i think that my particular institution is doing a great job but i think that others are not and i think that we are also going to be relying on the uh on the ability of 18 to 22 year olds to protect society. And I remember myself when I was 18 to 22 years old and I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, protect a 2001 Hyundai Elantra, you know, right. and I'm going to protect the entire world. You know, I think that it's, um, I think that everything's scary right now. We need to be able to laugh again as a society. I'm afraid we've lost that. That's what I'm afraid of. It's a legitimate fear. One, one I share, you know, losing nuance as a society. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a legitimate fear for creative people. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, creative people. I think that we need to be given the right to create, you know? Like, we need to, we need to be, I need to be able to write a book, not that I'm writing a book about Beethoven anytime soon, but I need to be able to write a book about Beethoven, and I need to include the fact that he might have been a jerk. <laughs> or I think there needs to be, you know, room to, to, to say that, uh, um, uh, the music of Wagner is very good, despite the fact that he himself was a horrible guy. I, I think that there's a lot of nuance that is, that is missing right now. And that's, that's hard as a, as a creator and that's hard as a consumer of media. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So Tom, if people wanted to follow you and check out what you're up to, where can they do that on social media? Sure. They could find me on, if they want to read things that I've written, I, I post them to my Twitter a lot. A lot of stuff I've written, there's no way to see unless I've directed you towards it. So, um, so you follow me um, at Tom Rizzuto, T-O-M-R-I-Z-Z-U-T-O, two Zs, one T. Um, on Twitter, that's probably the best way to do it. That might be, actually, that might be the only way to do it. Um, I retweet a lot of things about music that I find very interesting interesting and i'm going to be better about retweeting my own writing and place you see me if you want to as well uh if anything i said interests you you can watch my ted talk um understanding the music that divides us 
Uh, it is the absolutely worst produced and underviewed TED Talk in the history of TED Talks. <laughs> Uh, something happened during the filming of it. There is one shot of me from uh, the balcony of a theater, and you can watch me talk about uh, divisive music from far away while a sign language interpreter is given pretty much equal billing to me. So <laughs> there's, it's, it's really fantastic just to watch for that. And I think my hope is that um, in five years' time, I will break a thousand views for my TED Talk because on the, I did it at... Uh, RIT um, was put together by a lovely, a wonderful, wonderful group of students that will all be fantastically successful in the future. And the on the same day I did it, there was another kid who was um, uh, doing a TED talk about the importance of squatting when you take a shit. And his TED talk had thirty-seven thousand views. Mine <laughs> is stalling at like seven hundred and sixty. So that, yeah, how about that? So good. So that's also uh, takes care of your your professional goal for five years to break a thousand views. I would love to break a thousand <laughs> views. You know, for, so far the 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 greatest um, the the greatest thing that TED Talk has brought me uh, professionally is the ability to have a very impressive Facebook picture. Other than that, it, <laughs> you know, it really was a it was a great experience that uh, was thwarted by um, by bad editing. That's it. That's it. Editing. How about that? Right. Any more any better editors <laughs> doing all these things? Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Story King podcast, Tom. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. I'm glad. Uh, I had a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to hearing it. So that was my conversation with Tom Rizzuto. And man, his last point about uh, losing nuance in society, definitely a sentiment I wholeheartedly agree with. I'll have all of his links in the show notes. Now, if any of you listeners out there write a story and would like the chance for it to be read on the show, or you're a writer and you'd like to be interviewed, uh, just give me a heads up at storykingpodcast at gmail.com. Include your name and where you're from and what kind of writing you do. Again, that's storykingpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on YouTube and Twitter. Those links will be in the show notes. And please click like on our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com forward slash storykingpodcast. Or you can follow us on Instagram. Our username on there is storyking.podcast. And if you'd like to be a part of what we're doing with this show, please consider becoming a patron. You can choose a monthly membership tier at www.patreon.com forward slash the story king the link will be in the show notes as well one more thing if you're enjoying this podcast please do me the favor of subscribing and leaving a positive review on itunes or the medium of your choice i greatly appreciate it thank you for listening to the story king podcast the show all about fiction film and form please join us next time until then 